The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is Galatians 3, 15-22. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promises void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith is Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Kira. Well, I hope everybody had a good new year with the uh, fun 2020 theme. I'm sure you had a lot of fun. I I couldn't hear enough of that with all the 2020 vision and what's your what's your resolution? It's all 2020 and you know the glasses fit perfectly because there's zeros and twos and you know goes right over your nose and it was just a great uh, it was a good New Year for us as well pretty low key hope you had a, I hope you had a sweet one um, but it, it made me did you know kind of reflect back on um, resolutions as well as kind of years past themes you know 2020 has its own kind of carries its own theme, obviously, 2020 vision, yada, yada. But uh, it did make me think back to um, a year that uh, some of us may remember a little more distinctly than others, uh, the year 2000, because this year was considered what was called Y2K. Uh, I don't know if you remember what came with that. It, talk about a big theme in and of itself. Uh, in the year 1999, great year, um, I... Uh, <coughs> There was this issue that they thought in all of our computing, because so many computers used two, the two final digits in the number, so you know 99 or 98 or whatever, just as we do often in our vernacular, that what was going to happen when the clock turned over to 2000 is it would reset. So there was this panic, literally, that you know it, that once that you know clock just ticked over right there, boom, everything, it was like zero, we're going back to the Stone Age, right? And people literally uh, started stockpiling food. Uh, This is no joke. If you you remember this, it was a massive uh, deal across the country. Uh, Stockpiling food, people thought that planes were going to just fall out of the sky. People were saying, I'm not flying on that day uh, or any day after. Um, Some of you may remember that. Uh, People were worried that hospitals, like just machines would just shut down altogether, 
uh, and things, you know, there were magazine articles. People were in a panic. I remember even talking to my parents, and they said, because they have a swimming pool, they're like, we've got enough drinking water for it to last us for a while. And I was like, okay, and I hope they're hearing this. Because uh, that, was, that was, I was like, I'm so glad you'll be, you know, hydrated for the next couple hours. Um, and, um, but, you know, what was interesting about that, if you look at, and if you realize nothing, we're still here, everything's okay, uh, there are a few errors that occurred, but if you read about it, it it's really a gaffe and kind of a joke in, in uh, New Year history, but the one reason it has become a joke, if you look, is that years before that, people were actually testing it. So there really was an issue <laughs> that people were testing years before to make sure it didn't happen so that when it did, there were very minor errors. Now, even when they tested it, nothing crashed or fell apart. But long before that, ages, people were taking it seriously and had us in mind in order to look down the road and make sure that we were okay when that year came. You know, the Bible starts talking about ancient promises. Like this language in here kind of may even seem a little odd, and it is a little bit. Uh, to talk about, you know, the promises were made to Abraham and all these things, these things that happened years ago, and especially when the word promise is even thrown out, it's kind of like, yeah, okay, I mean, maybe he kept his promise to Abraham, that's great, you know, and even for us, maybe the word promise evokes some sort of skepticism or difficulty from where we've come from. You know, we look back on a year where we struggled with so many promises that we didn't keep, and we look forward to a year to where we hope to keep some. And yet we go, what is this promise here that God is making Abraham? How does the Bible's promises have me in mind? Like, what does this have to do with, with me? You know, it's interesting that Paul wrote this, and he's hearkening back 2,000 years before this was actually written, this actual letter of Galatians, to a promise made so that these people who were not Jewish, not connected to Abraham in terms of Judaism at all, realized that the promise was connected to them. And now here we are, 2,000 plus years later, looking at it saying, this promise is now connected to us. How in the world is it connected to us? And does, does God really keep his promises? I mean, how does he really do that? How does he really keep us in mind, especially in a world that is so impermanent and we're so used to nothing being permanent, everything changing, even the way that we keep our promises? We would kind of say, eh, I can fudge on that. The Bible actually says that, that we are made for eternity. Even if you're here and your thoughts about Christianity or the Bible is new, maybe you're kind of new visiting the church. Maybe it's kind of one of your resolutions to come back in. I'm going to make church more regularly this year and those kind of things. But is that really what it means? Like is, is Christianity connected to the, your ability to do that? Or is there a deeper promise? He uses this word in here called covenant. And this word is something that we're going to unpack a little bit that tells us that this promise isn't just a promise made to Abraham long ago that we kind of look in, we get to teach on it, and we get to unpack the Bible and see its historicity. This promise is actually made for you right now. Not just 2,000 years before Paul, but 2,000 years after Paul, long after Paul wrote this for the Galatians, he was writing for us. So you know all the promises that you haven't kept and won't keep are kept all in God. I love how one of my favorite uh, songwriters and singers, Gabe Dixon, puts it. 
All will be well, right? All will be well. He says, even after all the promises you've made to yourself, right? You've broken to yourself. Even after all those promises you have made and broken to yourself, all will be well. How will it? How do we know that? Well, let's unpack this, and we're going to look at it in a couple, just two quick things. One is, what's the difference between a promise and a performance, right? Paul is really trying to get at something here. What's the difference between promise and performance? And secondly, how do we know that this promise stays? How is it permanent? How, how are we kept in it? When he begins this and he starts talking to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say off, uh, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so to make the promise void. It sounds a little bit kind of... Uh, you know, choppy in there. But when we read the word promise, I, I think it could evoke a lot for us. And, and this is what the, the Galatians were really struggling with, is, is okay, there's a promise that was made to Abraham, and Paul is trying to use this example, even a human one. But when we, when we make promises, isn't that one of the hardest things for us, is to see, okay, is a promise really fulfilled? Because even... If you read now, one of the funny things that I've read over and over is if you read over different articles or different periodicals or books of how to keep goals or promises, a goal, you could put goal in that, is that we really have a hard time believing that we could really keep anything. I mean, and really that any promises would, would really be held by anyone else. And most of the time, maybe in our jobs, we say, well, we've got to fulfill our terms of this job or we get fired. But in our personal lives, even then, it can be easy to fudge on the fact that, uh, what does it mean for me to really fulfill this? And do we really trust that God, of all people, fulfills his promises when we struggle with so many things? We realize that, that promises can, can be kind of made and broken pretty easily. And, and, and especially for ourselves, even as, as Gabe Dixon said, even after we've broken all the promises to ourselves, that we make so many promises for ourselves and we can easily break them. Maybe we fulfill one or two. And yet, even with our own personal lives, I just recall even thinking of, of my own life in growing up, just with, uh, as an only child, single, single parent home in Dallas, Texas, just seeing my parents' relationship and watching them go through their separation and divorce. And many of you maybe have seen that or even been through that. And maybe you, you struggle with, man, I made these vows, I made these promises, and now where am I in that? Or maybe you've seen that or wa watched those crumble. How do we know that promises can be kept? How do we know promises can be made and kept? Because here's where it really gets to. The depth of those questions gets to something more and I know it does for me, and I know it does for you, is when we talk about, and one reason that we back off of really committing ourselves to super promises is because we're afraid of, of what is impermanent. We're afraid of actually not just the promises being kept, but are we kept? Does someone keep me? I mean, this is why it hurts, doesn't it? When somebody breaks a promise to us, it isn't so much what they didn't fulfill, it's that they didn't keep me in mind. They didn't hold me valuable enough to fulfill what they said they would do. And so the value of the promise isn't just the promise itself. The value is you and me. Our hearts get 
waylaid. And that's what it felt like even now, even thinking about what's, gosh, coming from my parents' divorce. What, what was it like? It wasn't just the promises broken. It's, am I kept in this? And I still struggle with that question. Even as the one who was the child of that. You know, Peter Berkowitz, who wrote um, years ago in Atlantic Monthly, who wrote in Atlantic, uh, something called Wooed by Freedom was the name of the article. But he wrote this about the impermanence and the way that we live, and I thought it was fascinating. He said, the lessons of impermanence and the systems of separateness intertwine, constantly complementing and reinforcing each other. And they encourage us to distrust others because we attribute to others the same attachment to the freedom to do as one pleases that we discern in ourselves. They impel us to suppose that others are withholding themselves from us because to safeguard our independence, we routinely withhold a part of ourselves from them. And they go to suspect that friends and lovers are secretly devising schemes for a fast getaway because we are carefully and covertly formulating such contingency plans all along. That our hearts just don't believe in that. Our hearts are full of this fear of impermanence because are we really kept? Who really keeps us? And more or less, does God really keep us? Does God really hold us? Does he really keep us to himself? I mean, does, after all the things that we've seen in our lives and we struggle with, isn't that it? Many of you are going through suffering right now. There's nothing like feeling suffering when you go, God, are you really keeping me? Like we talk about these promises in the Bible, but how do these promises fit in what I'm dealing with in my circumstances? Are they connected to that? Do the promises come and go based on our circumstances? Do they come and go based on what we have or our health or where we are? And isn't that what Paul gets to here, the point? He argues this. He says, he goes right back to the beginning. He says, when we don't, we want to cling to it. We want to hold it and try and keep the promise ourselves. Instead of believing that the promise is more than just our circumstance and it's more in a person, we believe it's in our performance. Listen to what he says. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say um, and offsprings, referring to many, but one, and your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise void. The point is this, is that the law comes in, and what we want to do with the law, and this is what the Galatians were doing, this church that Paul started, and he said, you are free in Christ. You are in Jesus. You have, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith in Jesus. And yet sweeping in behind that comes this idea and these people saying to them, yeah, God is gracious. The promise is there. But you know what? The law came after that. Yeah, the promise was first, but you got to keep your end of the deal. And isn't that what it is? When you and I, and I know for myself, when I don't feel kept, I work harder to try and make sure I'm kept. If I see that the promise isn't going to be fulfilled by myself or someone else, I want to grasp onto something that is. And isn't that what it is? A law. The law comes in. And we think, especially before God, that uh, God isn't, he's kind of changing his mind. He made this promise, but he comes in 430 years later just to say, well, the promise isn't working. I'm I'm going to put my law in place to make sure that you know you have to earn it still. Paul says no. Is it by promise or performance? When you 
feel in the depth of your heart that you aren't kept, that the promises are broken, especially by God, what, what do we run to? We run to anything else that's going to fill in to keep us. What has arms that's going to keep us? That's going to say, yeah, God's promise is okay. It keeps you, some maybe psychologically, or sometimes maybe it does tangibly. But does it keep you in ways that maybe this, this home will? Maybe this relationship will? Maybe this job will? The arms of those things are great, and they are wonderful, but they fail us. Because they can't ultimately keep, they don't last the years. They can't span beyond, and they ultimately crumble. And they can't hold us like what we want. What is the point of this law? He's saying right here, the law doesn't annul it, for if the inheritance comes by law, verse 18, it is no longer a promise then what's the point of the law? Is that Why does God bring the law in later? He doesn't bring it in to say, I'm changing my mind, you've got to earn it. He brings it in to show us how much we need the promise. It's actually more of a mirror. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. This is a, a quick moment, but, but there are three uses of the law. The first is a fence. And I, it gives, there's your illustrations over the centuries that, that theologians have, have given. First is offense. Offense is good, right? Offense helps you know where your yard is and where the other person's is, right? Offense is what law does. It tells you where sin is. So you don't have to cross it. Where a transgression is, where you're crossing the line. The second thing is a mirror. And this is where Paul's getting at. The mirror shows you your need. Look, when I was growing up in um, Dallas, really young uh, I remember we moved into a house, I think it was total 70s. And on one end of the house, uh, it had one of those, it was a pretty sweet house. You walked in, the chimney was there, it was kind of like in the middle of the whole house. And on one side was mirrors. Like the entire wall was mirrors. And even my parents' bedroom door was mirror. I mean, imagine that I was a little kid, like, you know, five. Uh, trying to find my parents, I probably loved it. They did that on purpose. So like if I woke up in the night, it's like, ah, where's my parents? You know, I can't like find the wall. It's like this hidden trap door. And it was the worst house to play any sort of like hide and go seek. Because like, you know, you hide and they're like, oh, there you are. Yeah, you're over there. Oh, I see you over there. You know, I'm like, you, there's no place to hide. That is what the law is. The law is a mirror that doesn't just, not just one little thing like you see right here. It's, it's one that spans across. It shows you every single thing about you that you don't want to see. And it's to drive you because the third use of the law is this. And this is what Paul's trying to get at. The third use of the law is a guide. We're actually not supposed to stop there as a mirror and show us how much we need Jesus. We're actually supposed to go back to the law to show us how to live in the promise. I don't know if you realize this, that every major sport across the United States, after the end of the year, every, the, the rule makers all get together and they say, what, okay, what worked, what didn't? One of the biggest things that happened in the NFL last year, the National Football League, was this pass interference calls. These horrible pass interference calls, like people were, you know, people going out for passes were just getting knocked over and nobody was even calling it. And it was, can you review it? Can you look at it? So what do they do? They gather at the end of the year after all of, during the off season and they sit together and they say, we need to create a rule that's going to help us play this game better and help protect people from, for catching the ball and also help the defense try and cover people. 
correctly. What were they doing? Were they creating rules in order to create a new game? No. They were creating rules in order to play it better. See, that's what the law is. It's a guide. The law isn't for you to perform and say, God, look how good I am. (laughs) It's a guide to to help you celebrate and enjoy God more in it. And the mirror shows you, you're constantly going back through. You're seeing where the fence is, and you're seeing yourself in the mirror, and you're seeing the guide, and you're always going back through. Why? Because it's pointing you back to your need for Jesus. That's the point. It's not a performance evaluation. The law comes in is to say, God doesn't change his mind about you or me at all over the centuries. He doesn't bring in Moses later and say, eh, let's put up this law because we need to set up more rules. Our people aren't getting it. He does it to make it more clear, to make our need for the promise and our longing for it to be more clear, not less. Just as anything else in our world is to drive us to that. It's to drive us to the enjoyment of it, not less. God is doing that with his law. But how do we know it's permanent? Like, how do we really know, though, okay, that's what the promise is. The promise is God saying, I'm going to take care of you. But how do we know it's permanent? Like, how is it not just for Abraham? When God talks about this, when, and, you know, when he talks about a promise to Abraham, and he's referring back to this, and Paul refers back to a promise made 2,000 years before, what God was promising to Abraham is that he would have offspring. That's why Paul brings this up, this whole like semantics. It's not offsprings, it's offspring. You're like, great, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> because long ago, that language was used to Abraham to say, Abraham, after you is going to come many, and there's going to have offspring, and you're going to have this life of a people coming after you. And it was easy for them in this way to say, eh, how does that work? So Paul gives a human example. He says, I'm going to give you a human example, a man-made covenant. And the word covenant, how does God keep a promise? He keeps it through a covenant, just like any of us would know in our culture. If you're building onto your house, you make a, con- a contract with a contractor, right, to fulfill the terms. In this language, it's actually talking about a last will and testament. The word covenant here, and it means a lot of things in a lot of ways, but this specifically is talking about a last will and testament, meaning you're writing what is all, who's going to receive all the things when I die? Who's going to receive all those, these things from this ancient promise? And see, when a covenant was made, you can almost think about it almost like a wedding ceremony. A wedding ceremony is a perfect picture of this. If you go to a wedding, even in this space, you think about the pastor, me, or whomever is fulfilling that, walking through the ceremony. What do they do? They give a call to bring everybody together. There's usually a charge to say, what is this wedding about? Then they, say, they go through vows, right, that say, we will fulfill these terms. This is exactly what a covenant is. That's what Paul is referring to here, the covenant that speaks back to that. It's like a wedding ceremony. But the question comes in here, okay, then even if this wedding ceremony happens, right, and the vows are made, who keeps the vows? You know, I was thinking about um, our life in terms of New Year's resolutions. Because I don't know about you, because when you think about maybe as 
you know, I don't know if you think this way, but you think about New Year resolutions, like we think about things, okay, what do we want to see in 2020? And maybe you're kind of done with resolutions, maybe you're like, wasted. But you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, I hope I see this, or I hope I look like this, or I hope I do this. Like you have these kind of ideas, and we kind of can think that God's promises are that way. Like that, that God can, his promises to Abraham and to us, maybe are that we have a good, fulfilled life, but actually there's something deeper than that here. He's not just trying to make sure that nothing happens to you, that the circumstances all work out. There's something more to that. There's a difference here. See, I actually did a little bit of digging. I was curious. I thought, man, I don't even know. Where did, where did New Year's resolutions come from? Uh, and it was fascinating what it pulled up. If you look... Um, you can find, it's not a hard search, it's not like I dug too, too deep, but you know, deep enough to see just kind of a few points in history. One is Babylonian culture. Ancient time, Babylonian culture. I mean, we're talking way back biblical time when uh, thousands of years ago that there were celebrations to honor a new year. Sometimes it fell, fell in the spring, sometimes it fell in the winter, it just depended. And usually it fell towards the agrarian society, a culture that did with farming and everything else. And they would honor the king and maybe the gods as well by bringing objects, promises to them in order to see return back on their life. And it even passed down later to Roman culture, which I thought was even more connected actually to us, is that Roman culture, that Emperor Julius Caesar uh, tinkered with the calendar and decided that the first of the year really should fall in January because of the god Janus. And because of the things that, uh, <clears throat> who was it, Janus? Listen to this, Janus was a two-faced god whose spirit inhabited the doorways and arches facing both sides, right? So January had a special significance for the Romans believing that Janus symbolically looked backwards into the previous year and ahead to the future. And the Romans offered sacrifices to the deity made uh, in deity and made promises of good conduct for the year. Interesting about what resolutions come from. What is the difference, though, between the way that we should understand God's promises and those promises? Any others? Listen to this from Genesis 15, the actual covenant that, that Abraham had with God. This is... Um, what Paul is drawing from. Genesis chapter 15. It's the very beginning of the Bible. Starting in verse 8, it says, but he said, asking God about this promise, oh Lord God, how am I supposed to know that I'm going to possess this? And he said to him, that is God, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Sounds almost like what we're reading, right? He's bringing sacrifice. He's cutting it. Couldn't cut the birds. A little too small. We're going to kind of set these animal pieces in half. And what they were doing was setting up a ritual where once you cut these animals, you would make the vows. Imagine this at your wedding ceremony. You would pass through the halves of the animals, and that meant you're saying, I make a vow that whatever is promised, I will keep. And if I don't keep those terms of this covenant, may I be like these animals, cut in half. 
As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Look, this is the promise. But I will bring judgment on the nation they will serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. And as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in fourth generations for iniquity, and the Amorites is not yet complete. Is that still the promise? What is it? Hold on. But when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt, the Euphrates. What is God doing? Who passed through the halves? It was only God. See, what typically happened in a covenant made, it was the fact that both parties would pass. But in this, what is God promising? That would these things be fulfilled, yet I'd be cut in half? And what would happen? How would God do this? The Bible is set up in a way that the entire thing is a covenant relationship. It is his marriage with us. And the only thing that he's trying to get across to us is to say, who is the faithful one in this relationship? Who really keeps the vows? And who's willing to take on the terms of every vow being broken? It's God himself. How do we know that this promise is different than any other promise in all of history, different than the Babylonians, different than the Romans, is that Christianity is saying this God is distinct, that there is no resolution that you and I can keep. There's no promise that we can keep. Because God is the only one that keeps them. And you know what he does? He goes even further than that, that when he comes in his son Jesus, he comes and is cut in half for us. You see what the cross is? The cross is actually the fulfillment of the covenant. This is why he says, and to your offspring, who is Christ, not offsprings, but your offspring who is Christ. What is a man-made covenant, this, test, uh, this final will and testament? How is a will and testament ratified? It's ratified and unchangeable when what? The one who made it dies. Who died to actually make this promise sure and never changing? Why does God see it necessary to come in space and in time to die on a cross? Is the cross just this historic middle thing that happens? Or is it, is it really him taking on not just sin, but he's actually taking on every broken vow and promise that you and I have made and, t- and, and every broken one in order to give us all of the promises fulfilled. It's all in him. He's the one cut in half. Look, we come to a table this morning that is really amazing. It's amazing in this very thing that this table is a weekly picture of the covenant that is made with you. You actually taste the promises here. How is this different from any other? Because God is the only one that keeps it. No other God in Babylonian, Roman, or any other culture in our own has given their body and blood to tell you and remind you 
every single week that these promises are kept. Yea and amen in Jesus himself. And he was rent apart, ripped at the seams at the cross, crying out to God, why did he say, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because every broken vow, every broken promise that we have made, all of the law that was set up for us to keep, broken on him. So that we may have the promises. We get to taste the promises kept for us. And it's unchanging. You can look back in your last year and think about all the things that you failed to keep and all the things that you look forward to in this next year and hope to keep. But what stays the same year after year? It is God. God is unchanging. His love for you never changes because he keeps you. The promise isn't just some land or some ethereal thing. It's you. He keeps you in this promise towards him. And here's what's amazing about what we're about to do at this table. This promise is not just a promise that you hear me say is kept once at this table. We say, until he, what, comes again. If he has promised that he would come and deliver himself to be torn apart and be the only one to suffer those consequences, don't you know he will come again and fulfill every promise he has made on that end looking forward? 